You are listening to a bonus episode of the Fancy Free Podcast, where my guests and I tell our most embarrassing funny stories so we all feel less alone in our imperfections and forge connection through vulnerability and humor. I'm Joanne Jarrett, I'm your host, and this is bonus episode number 11. I know most of you loved the Mary Turner Thompson episode, episode number 64. If by chance you didn't have time to listen to that one yet, you will be gobsmacked and fascinated. She is such a brilliant, intelligent, wonderful, funny woman, but she has just an incredible story of betrayal in her marriage and has an amazing outlook on the other side of it and a lot of funny stories that go along with it, as well as a book that she has written about it and another book coming out in the winter. Her book is called The Bigamist. I have just downloaded her very own audible recording of the book. I listened to a snippet and I think it's going to be fabulous. I can't wait to have more time to listen to it. Mary Turner Thompson was our guest in episode 64, but we had such a wonderful conversation that I didn't want you missing out on any of it. So I'm going to insert the leftover snippets of that conversation into this episode. But first, I'm going to put the audio from a Facebook live video that Mary did in a group to which we both belong, which is where I discovered her, so that you can hear a few more details about her story. I did remove some of the parts that she went over in our interview so that none of it would be too redundant, but I do think that you will really enjoy this. So here is bonus episode number 11. Enjoy. So in the year 2000, I was a marketing consultant and a business advisor. I was working for the Scottish Enterprise Network. I had recently become a single mother with a one-year-old daughter, and my life was about to change quite dramatically. Um, Having become a single mother, my friends suggested that I try this brand newfangled thing called online dating. Uh, I think the best comment that was made was, um, what could possibly go wrong? So I tried and I met a few guys and nothing really clicked. So after meeting, I think, three people, I, I decided that it wasn't working for me. I was quite happy as I was. And so I kept chugging along. And then out of the blue, I got an email from a very charismatic, charming man who said that he was infertile from a bad case of mumps as a child. Um, So he, as a result, he had spent his his life sort of chasing his career around the globe. So, and just everything, we, we, we clicked. Everything was, we had in common. You know, he'd read the books I had. He had the same philosophy as I had. Uh, and just everything seemed to sort of click into place. We met up, we started dating. He asked me to marry him within a month of meeting him and life sort of went on. We actually ended up with getting married within two years and miraculously got pregnant and had a baby. My baby daughter, Ailey, was born in May 2002. We got married in October 2002. Um, things started to get a bit fraught. He was uh, an IT specialist, but he was an IT specialist working for the British intelligence under comment from the CIA. So this was his job and he proved to me that it was his job. I met other people that told me he various things that, that proved to me that he was who he said he was. And in 2002, he decided he wanted to get out of the service. So he started working for big companies, doing IT, likes of Microsoft, BBC. He actually worked for the Deputy Prime Minister, John Prescott, for a while as well. But things started to get very fraught and... Life started to get very complicated and very difficult. People who he had worked with in his previous career had started to find out. The tapping behind me, by the way, is the dog, her nails on the wooden floor. (laughs) Not somebody doing a tap dance behind me. Um, But yes, things started to get very fraught. He was actually, um, somebody had discovered his real name, real identity, and was now currently blackmailing him, for want of a better word, that the kids would be kidnapped had bits ripped off them and sent us through the post unless we came up with money. So the whole of 2004 was a shark feeding frenzy of money drain and problems, financial problems. I was pregnant with our second child, miraculously. I, we, we, I lost my home. I lost everything money-wise. Everything went. But always, always things were just about to get better. And then in... 2006, he was arrested, and he was arrested for bigamy, for carrying a taser, for fraud, and for 
not registering his address under the Sex Offenders Act because it turned out that he was also a convicted sex offender. I got a phone call on the 5th of April 2006 from my husband's other wife. She'd been married to him for 10 years longer than I had. She had five children to him. In fact, when I had first got the email from him saying that he was infertile, both her and their nanny were both pregnant at the same time. So he certainly wasn't infertile. He not only had taken me for everything I owned, which was total amount of £200,000, just short of £198,000, but he had also taken out credit cards on my name and left me £56,000 in debt. So here I was, 2006, suddenly homeless, three small children to support. They were seven, four and one at the time. No money, no car, no anything. And I had to start again all from nothing. That is the very, very, very short version summary of what actually happened. There is an awful lot more to it than that, but that sort of gives you a little kind of outline summary of it. What is interesting is not so much what happened, but the why and the how. And when I found out that this was all the case, in the process of trying to find out what had happened and understand it, I discovered that actually he was a psychopath. He was somebody who is devoid of conscience and remorse, and he is somebody who is completely capable of destroying lives, even his children's lives, just for the game. That was all it was. A psychopath is somebody who is born without conscience or remorse. They don't have... We, we have those two points in your brain, just above your ears, just a little bit towards the back. So if, you, if, if I snapped my finger and cracked it in front of you, you would actually get, there would be a reaction. You'd, your eyes would crinkle, you'd, you'd shrink down, you'd, you'd move your head back. That is called a chemical empathic response to somebody else's pain. Psychopaths don't have that. They're born without it. And as a result, nothing they do affects them emotionally to other people. So the, the harm they cause other people doesn't actually affect them emotionally at all. So in Will Jordan's case, my husband, he's quite capable of impregnating women to rip them off for money. He's quite capable of, of ripping off businesses, of hurting children, etc., just as part of his game. And all the money he took from me, I don't think it was actually the money he was interested in. It was the measure of control. It was actually trying to find out how much he could control me. So my book is really about my whole story, about how I met him how he controlled me and everything else, um, how I came to find out about it, all the victims that I've found since then, because he's been doing this for 40 years now. And he has at least 14 children that I now know of by uh, eight women. That will be the tip of a very, very, very messed up iceberg, because those are the ones that I know of. Um, There are far likely to be about 40. You know, we have a, a Facebook group of his victims who help and support each other. What I did uh, in 2006, when I found out that my husband was married to someone else, it was actually a relief. And that's something that people don't really quite understand at the first when they first find out about this. It was a massive relief because the life I'd been living was terrifying. I was living in this world where people were out to get me, were out to go kidnap the children, you know, and to find out actually it was all just him was a massive relief. You know, there weren't these shadowy shadowy organisations that were going to take my children away. You know, so suddenly it was it was kind of like getting a get out of jail free card. I might be getting out with nothing, but at least I was out. So after finding out about psychopaths, I chose to think of myself rather like the zebra that gets away from the lion. You know, a zebra who is attacked by a lion and gets away doesn't sit there going, oh, dear, I got caught. You know, what they do is, woohoo, I'm away. I'm free. And that's what I decided to do. I decided to actually celebrate me being free and able to get on with my life rather than actually being upset about having been caught in the first place. I decided to look forward, not back. I decided to find out all about why he was doing it, so the psychopathy. I actually walked into a bookshop and I said to the book teller, I've just found out my husband's a bigamist and uh, a con man and I want to read a book about it. Can you help me? And the guy in the counter stood there kind of going, uh. So there wasn't anything. At the time, in year 2006, there really wasn't anything. There were, I think I was the first bigamist's wife ever to write a book about being a bigamist's wife. It has been done since, but I think I was the first. So we went to, I walked into a publisher instead and said, um, I'm going to write a book about this. This happened to me. And they immediately went, we'll have that. Thank you very much. So 
I actually never had to approach loads of publishers or agents or anything else. I, the story landed in my lap. The fact that I could write it up was a benefit, a bonus. But I think the editors and the, the publishers would have just rewritten the whole thing anyway, even if I, even if I uh, couldn't write. But as it happened, I could, so that was all right. And the book came out in 2007. And uh, having come out in 2007, it details a life with this man and, and what I came across, what I discovered. Um, and it became an international bestseller. In 2011, Random House put it up on Kindle as an ebook, brand new, fangled things that they were at the time. It's amazing how short a short time we've had uh, ebooks. But yeah, it's a brand new on top onto Kindle. And it was Random House's number one bestseller for the whole of Random House that year in 2011. Um, and it, was, it got to number one in the US Kindle charts, um, which was absolutely brilliant and absolutely mind-blowing that my extraordinary story could have such an impact and have a such a difference. But all of that, all of that is... Nothing in comparison to the fact that I get letters every day from people who say they've been through something similar. I get letters every day from people who say they, they not only have been abused in the same way under coercive control and mind techniques, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, but actually that they felt they could never talk about it, that they were so humiliated and so ashamed of what had happened that they couldn't talk about it. And the one thing that never crossed my mind was actually to be embarrassed about this because I know that I'm an intelligent woman. I may not come across that way on camera because I'm frightened of this red blinking light, but I am actually an incredibly intelligent woman. I am quite confident and I am quite self-assured. And if it can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. And I thought that was first, when I first started writing the book, somebody said to me, are you going to write it under your own name? You know, you're going to use your own name. And I was like, of course, why wouldn't I? You know, and I thought that the question itself sort of indicated kind of social perception there certainly was at the time, which is that, you know, if you've been conned, yeah, you should be a little bit embarrassed, you know. And instead of actually looking at the con man and the, the perpetrators of these crimes, we were looking at the victims and saying that the victims were at fault. And so I've become a bit of an advocate for, you know, to, against victim shaming and to make sure that, you know, victims feel that they could stand up. A hundred years ago, women, if they were raped, wouldn't come forward and say they were raped because they were then branded as loose women or, um, you know, sort of that the, the, they were somehow tarnished and, and now for, you know, damaged goods. And I think it's absolutely extraordinary. You know, nowadays, if you if you even dared to say something like that, you know, people will be horrified and say, absolutely not. You know, no woman who's been raped should ever have be ashamed of the fact that that happened. And yet women who have been in a relationship with somebody who has coercively controlled them or deceived them to the point that they, they have been conned out of everything, etc., are somehow deemed to be damaged goods. And what, what Will Jordan does to all his victims is a violation of their lives. I had a fascinating conversation the other day with a psychologist and we were talking about consent. And here's an interesting point for you to think about. If your partner has an affair and he knows, I'm sorry, it's both ways, male and female, but for this example, if your partner has an affair and he knows that if he told you about the affair that you wouldn't sleep with him, then your consent has by default been nullified. And that, I thought, was a really, really fascinating point. If somebody deceives you into sleeping with them, that it's actually sexual assault by deception. It's a form of rape. And it's like everything that Will Jordan does. If he had told me that his wife and his nanny were pregnant, that he was married, that he only had relationships with women to con them out of money, etc., etc., I would never have slept with him. I would never have had children with him. And I don't regret that because I love my kids. But... I would never have slept with him. So he got my consent by deceit. And that is sexual assault by deception. And it's really, it really opened my eyes, that conversation, because I did think, you know, as well, if somebody has an affair or somebody lies to you or does something, your consent is by default nullified. And I think that really is a fascinating comment. So not mine, I have to say somebody else's, but really, really fascinating thing to think about. So tell you a little bit about psychopaths. 1% of society are psychopaths. 
Now, there is a, a test created by a man called Dr. Robert Hare. And Dr. Robert Hare is the world leading expert, he's Canadian, on psychopaths. And he has created a test called the Psychopath Test that is 20 questions long. John Ronson has actually written a book about the Psychopath Test, so it's well worth reading. And uh, very funny, as always, with John Ronson and a very good read. So I thoroughly recommend that one. But Dr. Robert Hare's test is 20 questions that you either answer a one, a zero for not at all, a one for somewhat or a two for definitely. So things like, uh, and they're just statements. So things like uh, glib superficial charm. So either zero, not at all, one partly or two definitely. And out of the 20 questions, you have a maximum score of 40. Will Jordan, my ex, has been verified as psychologists in America have verified that he would score 40 out of 40, a pure psychopath. If you think about that, that person who has 40 out of 40, in fact, if it's between 30, more than 30 out of 40 is classed as, as, a, as a severe psychopath. More than 20 out of 40 is psychopathic. But 1% of society would score more than 30 out of 40 on that test. 1%, that's 1 in 100 people. When you think about the people you know, the people that you've actually spoken to in crowds, you know, if you're speaking to 2,000 people in the crowd, there's 20 psychopaths in the room. It's terrifying. It's a really, I mean, out-and-out out psychopaths. Um, up to 15% of the population are on the spectrum. That's 15 out of 100 people are on the spectrum. And if you think about that, it's quite terrifying. 4% of CEOs are psychopaths. 25% of the prison population are psychopaths. What I think is fascinating is at the moment, society thinks that only one out of four psychopaths are female. And that's, that's really quite a, a, an interesting thing to think. Personally, I don't think that's the case. Personally, I think there are probably equal number of female psychopaths to male psychopaths. However, I think it is more often women can get away with their psychopathic behaviour can be blamed on mental illness. I think they're better at hiding it because they're better taught empathy when they're children. So my, it's my personal theory. But at the moment, in, in, when it comes to psychiatric prisons, we have one female and three male psychiatric prisons in the UK. So one out of four are female. So there's quite a lot of very, very scary kind of statistics. They're very, very prevalent. And we're just talking about psychopaths. We're not even talking about sociopaths and, <laughs> and narcissists and, and malignant narcissists, etc. I mean, I can go into that. I can wax lyrical about that as well. One of the other things, I've just, I've just finished writing my second book, The Psychopath, which is a follow-on of what's happened with my ex Will Jordan, myself, my recovery, uh, and everything I've found out about psychopaths since 2007. And that is called The Psychopath, and that is coming out in the winter. And one of the things I've been really, really fascinated with, particularly in the last six months, is the language and the toxic techniques that these psychopaths, sociopaths and narcissists use to control us. So there's sort of various things that I wanted to share with you. One is, if somebody can control your emotions, they can control you. So somebody seems to be building you up, knocking you down, building you up, knocking you down, building you up, knocking you down. That is a toxic control. So you have to watch out for people that are doing that. There's a technique that I learned in 2007, which is actually called black ops hypnosis. And it was a course at the time that people were learning to be able to control and manipulate other people. And black ops hypnosis was about asking somebody a question, for instance, you know, sort of, what's your favorite movie? Uh, and you might say the Shawshank Redemption. And they'd go, really? And you'd feel humiliated even though you had a, a good reason to have that thing you know sort of like you'd feel you feel put down you'd feel judged put down and then they turn around and say oh actually no it's a really good movie actually you know a lot of people really like it and you would leave that confrontation that conversation feeling that you had done something stupid but they had been really nice to you about it and it, you feel like they're trying to build up your confidence but actually what they're doing is constantly knocking your confidence down and it is a conscious process that they go through to manipulate you. The other thing I wanted to tell you about is there are four control dramas that not only toxic people, that, that um, non-self-aware people do as well, which I wanted to tell you about, because that's something, is another way that people can control others. And there are four, and they're called interrogator, intimidator, in, aloof and poor me. And these four are means of, of, of grabbing and controlling your attention. 
So the interrogator will do, like I said, with black ops now. So they'll ask you a question and then criticize the answer. You know, how is your day to day? You know, sort of like, how is work? And you say, oh, you know, boss was in a bad mood. And they would say, uh, well, you know, what did you do to annoy them? So they'll ask a question and then they'll, they'll interrogate you and then they'll, they'll make you feel bad about the answer. The intimidator, the second one, is somebody who is just aggressive towards you to make you feel bad and, and make you feel like you need to walk on eggshells around them so they get your attention. The aloof is somebody who just removes themselves, won't speak to you, goes into the cave, you know, and, and you spend your energy trying to get a response out of them. And the poor me is the person who is always saying how awful life is and, you know, pay attention to me, I'm, I'm, I'm having such a sad time. Now, people do these things normally. Teenagers particularly do this. But most people grow out of it and realise that actually they don't need to get other people's attentions. There are no positive control dramas. There are no positive ways that you can grab other people's attention because we shouldn't be grabbing other people's attention. We should be, you know, giving people attention and that's how they give us attention back. So language is really fascinating. There is, um, and there is a fantastic example of somebody who uses these language, and you can see quite a lot of them in the politicians nowadays. But Donald Trump. So Donald Trump has been uh, Donald Trump has been wonderful for me. I have to say, he has done fantastic things for my sales um, because everybody now is talking about psychopaths and narcissists and um, toxic people, basically. So don't like the guy. I'm sorry if you're a fan, but um, I would class him as a malignant narcissist, which is slightly more dangerous than a psychopath. But, you know, we'll get to that some other time. One of the things that, that uh, Donald Trump does is he does something called word salad. And word salad is where you kind of you talk around a subject. And because the person is really keen on you and they like you and they, they want you to have a good answer. So they're and so they go back and forth and, and change the subject. And that's word salad. OK, they never actually come to the end of what they're saying. They just jump around and, and, and bit more in. And because they've got no point. And they don't have a point. And the person that cares about them, if you're having an argument with somebody and they're using word salad, you eventually will give them the answer that you will accept. So when you're having a conversation with a toxic partner or a toxic work colleague and they're trying to come up with an excuse for something, but it just doesn't seem to get to the end, eventually we'll turn around and go, well, you know, is it money problems? You give them the answer that they actually they need to actually satisfy what you would think would be a suitable answer. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's, it's word salad. It's actually a deliberate technique. And the way that Donald Trump uses it is that when he's giving speeches and he talks all around a subject but doesn't get to a point, his fans, his true fans who absolutely love him and worship him and think he's the next coming, etc., they will, in their heads, go, I know exactly what he's talking about. I know exactly what he's talking about. That makes perfect sense. Because he doesn't say anything, they, they take the answer that they would, they would accept for it. So they all think that he's talking complete and wonderful answers, the answers they want, but actually he's not saying anything at all. So the people who actually know what's going on, he's making, he just talks nonsense. But to the people who absolutely adore him, he makes perfect sense. So if the same happens in relationships and with work colleagues and everything else. It's the people who actually are hooked in and are in that kind of bubble that this psychopath or the, or the narcissist has will feel like everything is wonderful, whereas when people on the outside of it look at it from, from the outside as if they're completely bonkers. <laughs> so, so anyway, so that is a kind of... Um, a little bit of summary that there's also other things like in, in language like projection, you know, uh, if somebody, if you're having a, a, a toxic person when they're using language will actually project onto you what you think, you know, so if you, if you turn around and, and discover your partner has been lying to you, they will actually accuse you of lying. So it's a projection and it's like you get very defensive and say, no, I wasn't, you know, uh, and then the argument ensues and then they forgive you for, you know, what they say you've done and you feel like the argument's over. I'm really not making a lot of sense. I am so much better when I've got someone to bounce on it. Um, somebody's saying, how to control our emotions in dealing with others in the work environment? That is a brilliant question. Absolutely brilliant. Sociopaths um, in the workplace, there is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant um, movie online called I Am Fishhead. And it's all about sociopaths and psychopaths in the workplace. 
And what they do is they, in the pyramid of um, structure in a business, in a big business, they are going at the ground level and they undermine their colleagues. And when the colleagues are undermined, they then undermine the person who's above them. And the only person who's left to move into that place is the psychopath. And then they do the same and they end up going right to the top of the organization. So, I mean, I, I've, I've had experiences of working with psychopaths and it is it's stunning. It's, you know, I recognize now that that's what they were, whereas at the time I just thought, you know, it was a really odd situation. But I had a colleague who was actually doing exactly that. He was trying to undermine me. But when I actually started realizing what he was doing, I, I started to log down everything um, and write down everything he was doing, everything he was saying. And I started to make sure that I was verifying what I was doing to my boss. To give you an example, my boss was away for, uh, I think he was away for a month on a long honeymoon. And when he came back, my daughter had had chickenpox. And she was only two at the time. And she had chickenpox. And I had managed to rearrange my schedule so that she was looked after because she couldn't go to nursery. So my mother looked after her somewhat, you know, friends looked after her somewhat. Um, and other times, you know, when I wasn't having meetings, I was working from home. Um, so that I could look after her. But I was actually, there was only, I think, two or three hours that I couldn't actually cover in the whole of the, the two weeks that she was at home. When my when boss came back from his honeymoon and I saw him in the kitchen and he said, just randomly said to me, oh, yeah, I heard Hugh, your daughter had um, chicken pox. I was making coffee and I just said, yeah, 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 she had. And then I stopped and I turned around and looked at him and I said, you do know how long I had off, don't you? And he nodded and said, yes, two weeks. And I said, no, two or three hours. And then I told him exactly how I'd done it. And the thing was that a psychopath works in the background. They, they undermine you in the background. They don't just sort of stand up and confront you. They're putting things, little points in place that, you know, suddenly you realise, you know, it's like shooting, shooting holes in the floor. You know, they just, they just sort of drill a few, few holes in the floor and you're standing there thinking you're on solid ground and suddenly the ground just disappears from you. If you're aware that they're drilling the holes, then you can actually get ahead of it. You've got to be informed. You've got to know what's going on. You know, and if you know that your boss is a psychopath, I'm afraid the best thing you can do is look for another job. All right. It's, a, it's, it's just simple as that. If you know your partner's a psychopath or your boss is a psychopath, cut ties, do something else. I mean, get yourself in a position where you are safe to cut ties and move on, you know, set up a new life, set up a new job, set up everything else, and then just walk away because that just doesn't work. But if it's your colleagues that you think are psychopathic, make sure everything is documented, make sure everything you have evidence, record your conversations, keep your texts, keep your emails. Um, and the biggest rule of all of anything, whether it's your personal relationships, your business relationships, your clients, anything else, the biggest rule of all is if anybody tells you, you can't tell anyone. If anyone tells you, you have to keep silent. That it should ring red big bells that should make you go, I need to, to document this. Because if there's anything that makes you think you can't tell anyone, then that's when you really should. First rule of any abuser is keep your victim silent. And that's the one thing that I had all the way through my relationship with my husband is I was not allowed to talk to anyone. And it wasn't, I wasn't allowed to. The way he did it was he made it that if I talked to anyone else, I was putting them in danger. And that played on my empathy. So I didn't talk to anyone. And when you don't talk to someone, you can't articulate it. If you can't articulate it, you can't make sense of it. And as a result, it just goes round and round in your head. And then the only person you really believe and trust is the person who's telling you to stay silent. So red flag, anybody tells you to stay quiet, speak out. Even if you have to go to a Catholic priest or a lawyer, or you have to just write it down, make sure you don't stay silent, make sure you actually write it down or do something. Writing it down was the best thing I have ever done. It's like, by the end of my relationship with my husband, my psychopath, in my head was like this massive ball of spaghetti. And it was just like all looping over itself. And I couldn't make any head nor tail. I'd start one thought and it would go round and it would become another thought. And it was, just, it was so confusing. I couldn't make sense of anything. When I started to write it down and it was like starting to pull that thought out of your head. And it's like because you have to put it down in lines on the page. So you had to pull it out in a linear fashion. But it meant the thoughts in my head suddenly loosened off and I could see the end of the next thought. 
and they were able to write that as an, and it just it it clarified everything in my head and it made it you know it allowed me to step out of it and see what the whole situation was being a marketing consultant by trade people used to say what a marketing consultant does is borrow your watch to tell you the time and I always laughed and said yes but when you're doing this you need someone who can because it's too close so you can't see it but when you write it down suddenly you're pushing it away from you and you can see it as a whole in front of you and as a as a whole thing you can actually look at it and say I get it now I understand what was going on and because you can understand what was going on you can then allow yourself to actually sort of leave it behind and the thing is the, the people ask me as well you know why why am I not messed up by this why am I not an emotional wreck um, and one of the reasons is it's not personal. What a psychopath does is no more personal than a cat chasing a mouse. It doesn't matter if the mouse is a rich mouse, a happy mouse, a pretty mouse, whether the mouse has uh, got children or not, it's completely irrelevant, right? The cat has just found something to play with. And it's the same with psychopaths. They are the predators, we're the prey, and it is as, it is as simple as that. If you've been caught by a psychopath or a narcissist or a toxic person of any description, it wasn't your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. You didn't deserve it. Nobody deserves to be lied to, to be cheated on, to be conned out of money, to be raped, to be anything. Nobody ever deserves it. What they do is not personal. As I say, I was able to then remove myself and, and think of myself like the zebra that got away from the lion and just go, okay, well, I've got this new lease of life. I've got this new chance. I've got this new opportunity. What am I going to do with it? I, I'm pleased that I went through everything I went through. I am pleased I'm through it rather than it but losing everything has made me realize what's important and I was left with the three most important things in my life is my children um, and we the four of us have an absolutely fantastic relationship we have a, a great community we've been in lockdown together the four of us they've been banned for the room so that I can do this but you know sort of like we've been we've been in lockdown together and, and all of us have been getting on and having fun and you know it's actually been a really nice time for us to actually spend time together so, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of really pleased about where I am and, and, and what I've got in my life. And um, I probably wouldn't be here if I hadn't had the opportunity to, to rise from the ashes. So you kind of need to get burnt down to rise from the ashes, don't you? <laughs> any, are there any questions? Are there, you know, anybody want to know anything? Gillian's saying, so he can't be cured from being a psychopath. Was his aim to get money or to control you? Um, a psychopath, the biggest problem psychopaths have, they, they have no emotional reward structure, so they get bored. So they, because somebody who has empathy actually gets a reward structure from getting a hug, from um, knowing that, that the people they care about are doing well, you know, etc. So, so a psychopath doesn't have that kind of reward structure. So the only thing that rewards them is money, sex and power. So in my, my ex's case, you know, even the money, I think he, he finds it so easy to get money from people. I don't even think the money actually matters to him. I think with money, with him and money, it's, it's more a measure of control. The money's useful because he likes spending it on himself and, and he uses it, but he, he lavishes it on new victims. So when you first with him, you get lots of things from him. And then, then sort of later on, years later, he starts taking the money off you. Um, where is he now? Is he free to do it again? <sighs> He's in Vermont. In America, as far as we know, uh, at least last last we heard, he got five years for what he did to me. And his he turned out in 2005, he had two wives and three fiancés. And so he got five years for what he did to us and how much he got money out of us, etc. He was deported straight from jail in 2009 because um, he's from America. should have mentioned that. Uh, back to America and uh, within two weeks had forged his passport and birth certificate and uh, met a new woman on Match.com. Here's a line for you. Not everybody on online dating is a psychopath, but every psychopath is on online dating. Be warned. Yeah, Match.com, met a girl. She got in contact with me because my book is out there. His new victims get in touch with me. So she got in touch with me um, in, I think it was uh, October 2009. And since then, five, six, seven, eight new victims have been in contact. We got him put back in jail again in 2014 to 17, and he got out again, and he's still doing it. And he still do, he still will do it to the day he dies. That's, that's his modus operandus. That's what he does. Paula, would you defend yourself against a psychopath when he's telling lies about you to people you know? Oh, 
Oh, that's a good question. It entirely depends on how well you know the people. Um, I remember Will Jordan once turned around to me and said, my sister had made a pass at him. And that's a very psychopathic thing to say. It's like either he will try and have affairs with your friends to alienate them from you because it's isolate your victim. Um, or he will tell them, tell you that he, they tried and made a pass at him so that he would kind of try and set me up. So when he turned around and said, my sister made a pass at him, I'm afford laughing and said, no, she didn't. You know, you've been mistaken. Whatever you thought she did, she didn't. Because I know my sister. So it's having faith in those friends. You know, those kind of good friends, you know, they will never be able to tell against because they know you too well. The real key, I think, really is never, never, ever tell a lie. I mean, I brought my children up saying, you know, whatever you do is not nearly as bad as if you lie about it. Because when you lie to someone, that's when you're really poisoning things. So if you have a reputation for never telling a lie then you're in a much better position. But if somebody is telling lies about you, the more you open you are and the more honest you are and more, the more you turn around to your friends and say, this is what's going on, the more they're likely to realise who is telling the truth and who's not. It's very difficult, though. When psychopaths go to court, uh, when there are children involved, and you have this cool, calculating, calm persona standing there, and then you have the, the other parent standing there who is stressed and empathic and so in pain and looking disheveled and upset you know the judge looks at the two of them and generally gives the child to the psychopath because they're the person that looks in control so you know removing yourself emotionally from a psychopath is really really important especially if you've got children are involved so can't be cured um no you cannot be cured uh, psychopathy is not a is not a mental illness it is a personality disorder um, you are born with it as a psychopath. Is being a psychopath hereditary? Another good question. Yes, it can be. Yes, there is a, is a possibility that of some of the children that he's fathered, some of them may well be. But there is also a counteraction, which is that if you are brought up, so you may, be, may have no, psych, no chemical empathic response. However, if you're brought up with a good moral code, and a good moral response in you know, the, the loving, caring family, then you will not develop into a full-blown psychopath. You might not have the kind of same kind of emotional responses that other people do, but you become a good functioning member of society. One of our biggest problems we have in our society is you are not allowed to identify and to diagnose a person as a psychopath until they're 18. So if anybody, you know, so if we had a, a case last year of on... I can't, I, I've deliberately not remembered the psychopath's name, but I can't remember the, the victim's name, a six-year-old girl on one of the islands in Scotland who was murdered by a 16-year-old psychopath. I'm, allowed to, I'm not a psychologist. I can call him a psychopath, but psychologists can't because they're not allowed to, um, because you're not allowed to diagnose someone until they're 18. He was very clearly psychopathic. Um, his mother had real problems. She moved him from a big city to a small island to try and, in my opinion, I don't know this for sure, but to try and actually control it. There were a lot of cases where parents had actually been attacked, had attacked this boy because he was harming their children. Um, and, you know, sort of like, so she takes him off to a Scottish island. That mother had no support. She had nothing. I mean, who can she go to? Her, her son can be diagnosed with ADHD, but not as a psychopath. So there's no support for her. There's no help for her. You know, there's no, nobody saying, right, okay, this is, if you've got a child who is growing up as a psychopath, this is what you need to do. It's not bad parenting that creates psychopathy. It is a chemical wiring in the brain. So that poor mother, the, I mean, what can you do? You love your child, you know, what, what can you do? We need to help the parents of psychopathic children to stop them from becoming full-blown psychopaths. But you can't do that until you can identify them and allow to diagnose them. My, my high horse will get off my high horse. What was your darkest hour during this experience and how did you manage to work your way through it? Oh, I know exactly when it was. Um, I woke up three o'clock in the morning one day. I heard noises in the house. Uh, this was not an unusual occurrence. Um, I got out of bed. I took the taser that he had given me to defend myself and the children because I fully believed that there were these dark, shadowy figures who were coming to kidnap the kids. And once again, probably for the third time that night, I searched the house, expecting there to be multiple men 
in the house coming to try and take my job. And once again, searched behind every door, searched in the bathroom, searched everywhere, utterly terrified, but also mama bear looking after her children. And I sat down at the kitchen table and I, no one was there. And I just sat there utterly exhausted, so sleep deprived, so stressed. This has been going on for months. And um, I took a very large carving knife and I carved down, I don't know if I can show you this, um, I carved down my arm there's a scar that runs all the way down there so I wasn't trying to commit suicide I just took the point of the knife and I sliced all down my arm and I, I, I had to find some sort of physical manifestation of my emotional pain that I was in I told lots of people how how I'd done this and that this was everything else but for years I looked at that scar and I just I, I remembered that pain and that darkest moment and so last year, I, I got a tattoo. So I don't know if you can see it. I got a tattoo. I can't do this the wrong way, right? There you go. So there's a tattoo. And the tattoo is, I don't know if it can be seen this at all. It's actually a quill. And this, this here is the black belt. So I've got a black belt in Taekwondo now. If he ever turns up at the door, he's toast. Um, I've got uh, the three birds are my three children. And the quill is my writing. So every time I look at my arm now, instead of seeing the scar and the pain that I was in, I see the three things I'm most proud of. Did you ever feel he would kill you? Oh, gosh, no. No, no, no. No, no, no. He was he was the hero. Um, so <laughs> he was the one. He was the only person I felt I could trust. So um, after after sort of found out, um, the more I found out about him, the more I realized that he's not he's not physically violent. He never was. He never raised his voice to me. He was quite violent with some other people, but uh, he never raised his voice to me. And by the time I thought I, I knew all about him and everything else, I actually I started doing Taekwondo. I got my black belt in 2010. When you know a friend is with a psychopath, you can't do much. Uh, I mean, you can tell them, you can try, but what may happen is you just alienate yourself from them. What my friends did, which was so fantastic, is they did actually sort of stand, you know, they didn't know what was wrong. Um, they didn't know he was a psychopath, but at the same time, they knew something wasn't right. Um, um, but so they were there for when everything crashed down around me. They they were there to help pick up pick up the pieces. So making sure that there, there's still that connection there between you and your friend, um, so that uh, you're still there for when when they find out the truth is is really the major thing I would say is make sure that there's still a bridge for them to come across, because uh, if if they manage to alienate everyone from their victim then there is no escape from them. What do your children think of him? Do they love their father? No, they don't love him. They don't know him. I mean, he's seven, four and one when he left. So my son doesn't remember at all. They know as much as I do. There's nothing hidden from them. I've been absolutely honest and straightforward with them. So they know the whole situation. I know it sounds strange because I talk about him as a psychopath. Uh, I have never been rude about him. I've never said what well, or anything like that I've, I've always been completely matter of fact about it and you know sort of like this is what he's done this is why he's done it you know this is who he is my 18 year old daughter she's at one point said she'd quite like to meet him one day just to see what he's like but um no they don't they don't love him i wouldn't say that no just uh, they're maybe slightly curious but no i think they're They've had a chance. The nice thing is they had a chance to talk about it all the time, which was great. So they didn't sort of feel like this that they couldn't talk about it. Yeah. If you take a psychopath and um, strap him to an electric chair, and you take an empath, a normal person, and strap them to an electric chair, you say to the empathic person, "I'm going to give you an electric shock. The heart rate will go up." Right. You give them an electric shock. The heart rate spikes. Then it comes down against normal, and then just carries on. You tell that person. They're, they're going to get electric shock again. It spikes again, all right, right back up to the top before they get the shock because they are having an emotional response to their own pain. A psychopath, however, you say, we're going to give you a shock and their, their heart rate remains the same, right? They get the shock, it shoots up, comes down again. They say, we're going to give you another shock. It remains the same. It does not, they don't have an empathic response to their own pain. So psychopaths don't care about anybody, including themselves. Right. They don't care about, you know, the, the Will Jordan, my ex, uh, one of his um, 
partners didn't want to have any more babies. She'd had enough babies, she didn't want to have any more. So she said she was going to get her tubes tied. And he said, no, 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 darling, don't do that. I'll go and get a vasectomy. And he came back with what looked like two cigarette burns either side of his testes. Strangely enough, she got pregnant again. Psychopaths can damage and hurt themselves. And he did to try and give me physical evidence of where he'd been and what he'd been doing. He damaged his own body to do that in most extraordinary ways. But to actually burn yourself on, on, on your testes with a cigarette, not once, but do it again, is mind-boggling. That's when usually the guys in the audience go, <gasps> but it's an extraordinary thing to do. So psychopaths don't care about other people, but they also don't care about their own selves, their future selves. It's just right now. They don't care that in two seconds time, they're going to feel pain. They don't care that in six months time or a year's time, they're going to go to jail. They don't care, right? They care about nobody, including themselves. How would you approach it if your children did want to meet up with him? I'd be fine. I'd be fine with that. My children know enough now that if they did meet with him, you know, that they, they wouldn't be affected by it. To be honest, if he and I were both sitting here in front of you, and even if you'd read the books, you'd seen that you'd look, talked to all the victims, and he and I were sitting side by side in front of you, you probably believe him. <laughs> it's, he's just, he's so calm. He is so humble. He is so... Um, together and so logical uh, uh, he's just very very good at what he does he gets stopped by the police in America and he's he's a mixed race man uh, gets stopped by the police in America and there was a, one of the victims in the car with him and she witnessed him him doing this and he was stopped for having a broken taillight or something and the policeman uh, was very polite to him he was very polite to the policeman and the policeman left and didn't even check his license or anything and it's quite funny because he doesn't actually have a driving license so he's very, very charismatic, very, very good of doing what he does. So if my children wanted to see him, I would feel nervous because I would feel like, you know, somebody once said to me, you know, if I, if, if, what would I say to him? And actually once somebody said it to one of my daughters, said, what would you say to him if, um, if you, if you had him in front of him? And the thing is, the answer to that is quite simple. Nothing. There's nothing I could say that would make any difference to him. There's no words I could convey to him that would make him feel anything, feel any guilt or, or a remorse for what he's done. There's nothing I could say that matter, and there's nothing he could say that I would believe. So there's literally no point in having a conversation with him. It's just, it's, it, it is just not, it's just no, no point at all. So, uh, and I think, you know, my children kind of feel the same way, but I would feel slightly nervous because he's so good that, you know, you just think that that actually might set them off their equilibrium. But, um, I think I think I would be happy uh, as long as they as long as they detoxed afterwards and talked about it afterwards. I think I would be happy for them to do it. Anyway, thank you very much for having me. Uh, thank you, Gillian, for for suggesting this. I think it's a great idea. I'm feeling slightly more comfortable in front of the red dot now. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks. And I hope you all have. I, I hope something wonderful happens to you all today. Take care. Bye. We skipped over the icebreaker questions. We'll do them at the end if we have time. <laughs> okay. But now, but now I'm really curious about your Enneagram number, if you know it. Oh, seven. Okay. All right. Very good. <laughs> so you, by by nature, are kind of forward focused. So you've uh -huh. had to discipline yourself not to always just be chasing the next best thing. Yes. But so that is not something that comes naturally to you, and yet you are still teaching that, and yeah. you are living that by example. I yeah. love it. That's yeah. Awesome. I'm also, I'm very, I'm a very creative person and I've, I've worked out that I go, I'm, I'm very bad at admin. <laughs> I'm very bad at the detail stuff, but I actually, I, I know that when you go into stress, you go into your opposite. So I put myself under stress. If I've got deadlines, I've never missed a deadline yet. So, because oh, wow. when I go and when I get stressed under deadlines, I, I get very efficient and very detail orientated. So I just, I just wow. use that. And I know, and because I know that about myself, I just give myself deadlines and I get things done. So you, you've definitely learned how to not manipulate yourself, but to sort of use <laughs> your positive attributes. I think that's a very good yeah. way of putting it, actually. I, I've learned how to manipulate <laughs> myself, you know. Yeah. I, just, I, I just know that, I mean, it's certain things like I, I, I'm terrible at cleaning the house. Awful. But, you know, if I if I have yeah. an argument with the kids, that's what the first thing I'll do is I'll start cleaning. Every so often I pick a fight just so I can actually get the house cleaned. <laughs> <laughs> I totally.
father-in-law the other day that I was procrastinating because I didn't want to make a phone call that I had to make. I was like, wait, that actually kind of worked out though. The house looks really good. It does. And it's like, the thing is, if you're aware of that, I mean, being self-aware is absolutely fantastic because if you're aware of that, then you could use that. You know, That's so right. you go, I want to clean the house. So what I've got to do is I've got to book a phone call that I don't want to make. Yes. <laughs> we got to learn from those things. Absolutely. Exactly. Yes. What movie line gets quoted most in your house? Ooh, that's um, Have Fun Storm in the Castle. Okay, explain. As people leave the house, as they walk out my door, <laughs> you know, sort of like my children, particularly as they go out, I go, Have Fun Storm in the Castle. It comes from The Princess Bride. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. And one of my favorites, and I think I may have adapted it because I, I haven't checked on it in a while, but I'll say, you know, something, something, and I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? And I, I'll crack <laughs> myself up and my, and my kids are like, mom, God, you know, <laughs> sit down and I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> But it's such a good light. It's, 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 the, it's the light where it says have fun some of the castle when they leave the healer, the old man and woman who have given him the chocolate pill. Okay. Uh, as the three men leave, one's, one's still dead. The giant and uh, fencer are, are carrying the body of their dead friend. You know, And he, he waves and he goes, bye, have fun storming the castle. So <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, what's the strangest name someone you've met had? That's an awkwardly worded question, but I think you know what I mean. I used to work with a guy in Scottish Enterprise, which is the where he gave business advice. And there was this guy who was an accountant who was called Dick Harden. Oh, my. <laughs> and it was like, actually at his retirement due, I was chatting away to him and I said, so what are you going to do now? And, you know, he was this really serious guy. And it was like every time, you know, he left a message and he said, hey, what's his name? It's, oh, it's Dick Harden. They'd go, ha, ha, ha. And he'd go, no, that's really my name. And, uh, you know, so he was, it was utterly hysterical. So at his retirement due, I said, what are you going to do now? And he said, uh, well, I've got, I've got a couple of pigs, you know, so I've got to be looking after them. And I said, oh, really? Have you got, have you got names for them? And he said, yeah, they're called George and Mildred after me and my wife. And I said, but your, but your name's Richard. And, and he said, no, it's actually George. It's George Richard Harden. And, and I just absolutely fell about. And he gave this little twinkle in his eye and his entire working life. He, he told everyone his name was Dick Harden. Oh, my gosh. And it turns out he had a sense of humor. It was just super dry. Yes. Yes. And I loved that. I thought that was brilliant. I love it, too. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. What's the scariest thing you've ever done for fun? Mm. Bungee jump. What? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's actually fun. Uh, I've done a firewalk as well, actually, as a matter of fact. Um, but the bungee jump was purely peer pressure. But I kind of oh, glad okay. I did it because it was. Uh, I was scared of heights. I was scared of meeting people. I was scared of being on my own. I was scared of all sorts of things. And uh, when I was standing on the platform, 150 feet above the the, the ocean, this guy said to me, "You know, you do this. You shat the shat. Excuse me. Start that one again. That's going to be an edited out moment." <laughs> uh, <laughs> said, "If you do this, you shatter the boundaries of your box that surrounds you." You know, you, you, you go through life in a, in a box that gets smaller and smaller. You know, you see someone hit by a car, you stop crossing the road that way. You see someone getting bit by a dog or you get bit by a dog yourself. Then you, you start getting scared of dogs. You end up going to the same route to, to work and back, watch the same programs, talk to the same people and do the same things. And you're in a rut. And a rut is just a grave with the ends kicked out. You know, if you do this, if you take this jump... You will smash that box to smithereens and you will be free to do whatever you want. And then he said, I'm going to count down from five. I'm going to find five, four, three, two, one. And you're just going to jump. So he went five, four, three, two, one. And I decided if I was going to jump, if I was going to die, I was going to do it, do it looking good. So I didn't jump. I dived. <laughs> so I dived oh, off this wow. platform 150 foot above the sea and I screamed every second that it takes to go down and it takes seven <laughs> seconds to fall 150 foot which is a long time seven a lot seconds. Of seconds and it's like i, I screamed so hard time. i bruised my voice box and uh when i i dived into oh. the water so i got it went up to my waist in the water and i realized as i hit the water i had this huge surge of relief and i thought you know oh, i'm on the, i'm on the land i'm on the i'm on the, i'm not dead right 
And I completely <laughs> forgot that I was actually attached to a piece of elastic. So as I went up <laughs> again, I started going, oh, damn, oh, bugger. I no. came up with every single expletive I have ever learned. No. Yeah. And then I screamed all the way down again and I swore all the way up. And uh, I actually bruised my voice box so badly I couldn't speak for two weeks. But uh, <laughs> gave you a lot of time to think. Yeah. <laughs> and was your box shattered? Yes, it was. You know, I did that in my 20s and it has always stayed with me. And that whenever I get frightened and I start to feel that, that fear is holding me back, I actually do the thing I'm frightened of because it's going to shatter that box again. So I did. Wow. Uh, I started to feel a bit, a bit sort of enclosed again. After the whole Will Jordan thing, I started to feel a bit, mm-hmm. bit nervous about life. So I went and did a fire walk and uh, walked across burning coals in my bare feet wow uh which was quite interesting experience itself but yeah so i do i do tend to like things like public speaking if i go oh i'm too scared to do that i go right well i've got to do it i haven't jumped out of a a perfectly good airplane yet (laughs) and i don't think i'll do that until i'm in my 90s yes save that one (laughs) but other otherwise you know sort of things things that actually frighten me i kind of go okay you know i've got to face this because you feel so fantastic after you face the fear you mm-hmm, really do. Mm-hmm. You feel so amazing. Yeah. And, uh, you're right. There's a it, total rush. Yeah. yeah. And it just gives you that feeling of control in your life as well. What are pants to you or knickers to us? Um, okay. So, yeah. So you, when you say you're wearing and pants. You know, what, you know what confuses me is a vest. What's a vest to you? A vest to me is a uh, usually a white cotton sleeveless um, necklace shirt that you wear under your shirt under okay yeah. oh okay so you, you, wear, you wear it to stay warm. over yeah this, a vest here is something that you put over something that's sleeveless yeah huh yeah. interesting uh, okay that, we, we'd call it a tank top i don't really? know why i don't yeah i don't because know why what you're describing we call a tank top oh really <laughs> yeah <laughs> well that's now funny. we know that is funny <laughs> Someone got it backwards and it wasn't you guys because yeah. it's well, you never know uh, when this gets invented. Yep. <laughs> that's true. You have already given us so much wonderful advice, but is there any other burning advice that we didn't cover that you would like to give or have gotten? Yes. Best piece of advice I was ever given was by my father, which apparently came from his mother. So it's been a bit of a family tradition. But he said, and I quote, decide what you want to do and stick to it until you change your mind. And it's just such a great piece of advice because whatever you do in life, do it for everything you've got. Do it as if it's the only thing you've ever wanted. You know, if you decide you want to become an actress, you go for that with everything you've got. And if halfway through it, you decide, actually, I don't like this, then you decide on something else. You go for that with everything you've got. Because the trouble is what happens so often is people dip a toe in and just go, well, I'll try this a little bit. And you know, if you don't mm-hmm. jump in with both feet and do it the best you can, then you're never going to really find out if it's for you. The other side of that too is some people feel like they have to stay with something because they've given it their all. And yes. it's, it gives you license to pivot. People feel like if they've invested something so heavily into one thing that they have to carry on doing it. But you're going to end up having a really miserable life if you stay in the things that you really don't like. I started out as an actress. I then went into film and television. I worked in BBC in London, and then I became a video producer. And then I decided I didn't like that industry at all. And I retrained in marketing and became a business advisor. And I was a marketing consultant for many years. I was a professional busybody. I used to walk into people's companies and tell them how to run them better. It was great. I loved it. Then I found out my husband was a bigamist and I didn't feel like I could give people advice there. You know, I'd now sort of become internationally renowned for being the worst judge of character in the history of mankind. (laughs) (laughs) And as a result, you know, I felt that was a bit difficult. But then I became an international bestselling author and a speaker. And I now run a publishing company where we help other people publish their stories. I help people from anything from writing, coaching to editing to, to actually getting published or marketing their books. And, you know, I'm loving it. But I've had 15 different careers. Yeah, you've reinvented yourself. Yeah. And that is so brave. And some people just write it off as an impossibility, but it isn't. No, no, it's not. On it. It's just a matter of going, okay, well, this is snapping now. What do I, what, <laughs> which direction am I going in now? Okay, there you have it. Mary Turner Thompson, incredible as always. 
Go back and listen to episode 64 at fancyfreepodcast.com slash episode 64. If you haven't heard her main episode, it is absolutely fascinating and super fun. Have a wonderful week and remember, no one is as fancy as they look.